Hello, I'm Rosie. And I'm Matty. Um, rather blocked up Matty today, I have to say. Um, and welcome to Textual Feelings, a podcast about genre-bending books, creative non-fiction, queer feminisms, and much more. Actually, I should say welcome to the last ever episode because after a year, textual feelings is coming to an end. Yeah, and we are very, very sad about Mm -hmm. it. Um, But we've got to do our thing, you know. Matthew's moving to the USA to do a PhD and we are going to just have to figure out how our collaboration will change its shape. Yeah, like maybe some kind of transatlantic form that doesn't involve hours and hours spent together in person. (laughs) <laughs> but we really want to thank you all so much for listening um those of you who've supported us right from the beginning like even our parents although i do hope my parents don't actually listen to this but also those of you who've come to know us along the way like we've really loved every moment of working together it's been a huge learning experience like intellectually and also technologically <laughs> because i at least had no idea how to use sound editing software before this but yeah i just we, well, we really hope that you've enjoyed listening to us ramble on. Yes, as we shall continue to do for the next hour plus, because this is um, going to be quite a big episode. So today, we are going to be talking about Paul Preciado's spectacular book, Testo Junkie, Sex, Drugs and Biopolitics in the Pharmacopornographic Era. It's kind of an intimidating dun, dun, dun. title. Yeah, it's a big title, but don't turn us off, because um, it's really exciting. Um, This book is many things, a memoir of self-experimentation, a history of the creation of gender in the 20th century, a theory book about sexuality and gender, a manifesto, a polemic, a novel, Mm -hmm. and it manages to be all of these things in a very extreme way, which sounds mysterious, but I think (laughs) you'll come to understand what we mean by that. Yeah, let's hope so. So... We were both very excited to work on this book, but neither of us had read it in a while and realised when we reread it how much of a mammoth task it would be. And then it was too late to change our mind. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this episode is slightly longer than usual, but we're really, really excited about it. Yeah. So to introduce the author briefly, Paul Preciado, like Testo Junkie, is many things. A writer, a philosopher, an activist, and also a curator. And as well as teaching courses in universities such as NYU, he was one of the curators of the Contemporary Art Exhibition Documenta, which takes place every five years and was in Castle and Athens last year. Yeah, and you were there for the Athens opening. I was indeed. It was very strange. But I did see Paul Preciado in bed with Annie Sprinkle. Huh? But that was... (laughs) It was a performance, so it wasn't me spying (laughs) on them. But yes. Um, And... Preciado is probably best known for his writing, and Testo Junkie was first published in 2008 in Spanish and French, then in English in 2013, translated from the French by Bruce Benderson. And it was published by The Feminist Press, a really great publishing house in New York. Mm. This book is Preciado's second, coming after the Manifesto Contrasexual, 
which was published in Spanish in 2002, and before Pornotopia, an essay on Playboy's architecture and biopolitics, published in 2014. Right. Preciado is a trans man who, since Testo Junkie's first publication, has changed his name from Beatrice to Paul. Yeah, and my well, our copies are both from the fourth edition. And this is important because this edition marks the first time that the book's published with the author's name as Paul B. Preciado, as opposed to Beatrice. And this change is actually addressed in a note at the beginning of the book, which states that while Paul's name has changed um, and the initials of the narrator used in the book have been left the same as before, so BP. Um, he sums this up his position on this by writing, understand that Paul absorbs and assumes all that was once BP. So we're going to be using male pronouns when talking about the narrator and the writer. Um, these are Preciado's current correct pronouns. But I also think it's worth saying, and this will become clearer as we go, that Preciado's approach to writing about himself in the book as a lesbian, as a trans man, as a body hooked on tea, as he puts it, doesn't give us like the tools or the right to define Preciado's relationship to his own gender, which is obviously not something we can do as readers. Yeah. But also because, as you'll know if you've read the book, his approach to gender is so highly deconstructive that it just refuses any simple categorization. So that's a practical but also political note about how we're going to be talking about the book and its narrator slash writer but that's not to conflate those two subject positions and in fact as with the Argonauts and with many of the texts that we've talked about in the podcast and referred to in our library talk if you mm -hmm. listen to it so that's books like I Love Dick um it's important to foreground the literary performative and even yeah. fictional nature of this kind of writing so it might draw on the memoiristic the personal but nonetheless it's not simply or maybe even actually yeah. memoir. So these writers are using their own names and elements of their own biographies, yes, but that doesn't mean that we get to conflate their narrators with the writers themselves. But we'll come back to that in more detail later as a, as a kind of interesting topic. But, you know, for now, um, how to begin describing this book? What a task. So I think there's a lot of different layers involved in describing this book to those who don't know it and even to those who do yeah. it's such a treat for us actually as readers to be able to try and do this because it will really help us understand how the book functions and what its form does i mean it's such a slippery shifting book every time i read it or even like every other sentence i think it's a different book yeah Okay, well, to give a literal sense of the structure, we can say that there are 13 chapters and an introduction. Yeah. And it's a big old book, around 400 pages. It's heavy. Yeah. And seven of the chapters are structured around BP's experiment of taking testosterone in the form of testogel outside the medical system. Yeah, and by outside the medical system, we mean that BP isn't being prescribed testosterone as part of a medically defined gender transition, but is buying testosterone on the black market, so as actually part of a community of trans people who he calls gender hackers. Yeah. And at this time, BP is living in Paris, and the account starts just after the death of Guillaume Doustan, referred to in the text as GD, a friend of Preciado's who died in 2005. Preciado then meets VD, who is Virginie Despont, one of the directors of the French crime thriller Rape Revenge, Baise Moi, which is great haven't seen it and they embark on an intense and exciting love affair <laughs> i'm making it sound like a bad romance novel which it really isn't but um anyway the rest of the six chapters act both as a text that charts the history and progression of the pharmaceutical and pornographic industries in the west 
and as a theoretical consideration of how these produced and maintained the construction of gender in the 20th century. Oof. So quite a combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a heady mix of sex theory and history. And this is what makes the book's analysis of gender so comprehensive and compelling. And basically, Preciado is arguing that we are in the pharmacopornographic era right now. Yeah, which I love that you introduced as basically, because that sounds so dense and theoretical, (laughs) which isn't what we normally do at the podcast. No, but a challenge Mm -hmm. for us. I think it's worth saying that despite the fact that this is a very theory-heavy book, we aren't interested, right now at least, in discussing the theoretical content in its detail and trying to understand it. So what exactly the book is arguing is not going to be the focus of this episode, as much as how the argument is presented and the various ways in which it shifts formally and tonally throughout the book. I mean, obviously, we do have to understand what it's about. Exactly. I think, yeah, in order to talk about what the book's doing and what it is offering as a polemic or manifesto or piece of performative fiction or romance novel, (laughs) um, it, it is maybe necessary to at least attempt a kind of summary of the theoretical parts and to get to grips a bit with what this pharmacopornographic era is that we're currently living in. Also because it's fascinating, not not just as a means to talk about the more juicy parts. <laughs> so I think it's correct to say that the book offers a particular historical narrative, tracing a line between different forms of state governance, pharmaceutical developments and sexual norms in the West from around the late 1930s onwards. But its historical breadth is huge, like it goes all the way back to medieval witchcraft and looking at how we got to this point, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So Preciado does this over many chapters, and what we're going to do here is offer a very broad overview of the kind of historical and theoretical moves and claims made. Yeah, so let's go back to the title and start from there. Mm. Testo Junkie, Sex, Drugs and Biopolitics in the Pharmacopornographic Era. So I think we'll take the two main concepts in the title because we know what sex and drugs are, so I think we can skip those. Mm. Um, Or we think we do. Do we? (laughs) Who knows? Um, So, Matty, why don't we start with biopolitics? Yeah, so as you might have guessed, one of Preciado's main interlocutors is Michel Foucault. So Foucault was the French philosopher who is perhaps most famous for theorising the role of power in the ways in which societies are formed and governed, and really for conceptualising this idea of biopower, which Rosie is now going to explain for us. (laughs) Yes. So to give a very quick overview of this, Foucault first used this term in the mid-1970s in a lecture, and then the term appeared in his book called The History of Sexuality, where he uses it to describe the role the state has in exercising control over and disciplining populations through seemingly innocent methods. So what does that mean? (laughs) Well, Foucault says that these techniques emerged in the second half of the 18th century, when states in the West started to record and measure the birth and mortality rates of the population. This then resulted in the development of organisations that coordinated medical care and centralised power, so medicalising the population and creating a public knowledge of hygiene. Etc. So things like recording population numbers and centralising medical care, which we all take for granted now, I suppose, are methods the state uses to control the life of its citizens. So if we take sexuality as an example, it's from Foucault that we learn that homosexuality was created as a deviant category, first used in 1868, 
to distinguish between heterosexuality as the norm and anything, any other form of sexual expression. So creating distinctions that we use to oppress and control those who did not comply with this heterosexual norm. Great. Not great. Well, <laughs> terrible, Clear. in fact. So, according to Foucault, these disciplining methods, for example, categorising people's sexualities in order to track reproduction and control the spread of disease, are ways of disciplining individual bodies in order to control entire populations. Mm -hmm. If the population rate and the health of the people are monitored, then they will serve the state well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. In his later works, Foucault also made the connection between biopolitics and state racism, which will also come up a bit later. Yeah, and many people have critiqued the lack of attention he pays to colonialism in his discussion of the development of Western power structures like, yeah. throughout. So this is the broad genealogy that Preciado's book is working from, this idea that biopolitics is key to understanding how power works in the 20th and 21st centuries. And Preciado moves from where Foucault left off towards looking at forms of control and power during what he calls the pharmacopornographic era, which we are currently living in. Mm -hmm. He says that Foucault's analysis seems to fall off the closer it gets to the contemporary. It's and that's shade. Where, yeah, exactly. And that's where he is stepping in. Yeah. Um, Post-World War II, with the analysis of the technologies of the body, surgery, endocrinology, and genetic engineering, and kind of the changing of representations of the body, like TV, internet, photography, yeah. film. Yeah, great. Well done, Rosie. Whew. So, yeah, and so this analysis of contemporary forms of biopower um, is all just gathered under this big concept, the pharmacopornographic mm -hmm. era, which is like really at the centre of the book, and it's not as dry and theoretical as it sounds. No. Okay, well, I mean, it is theoretical, but it, it's, it's also so much more. I mean, it's really the driving force of the book, and I think it brings together all the formal and generic elements of the book into this argument. So not, not just theory, but also mm -hmm. like thought experiment and fiction. Yeah, and we really tried for a long time to figure out how we could present this argument, and there's so much rich and fascinating information in the book. But we kept getting kind of stuck, I think, because we were trying to separate Preciado's presentation of the historical and theoretical information from what we were calling the more personal chapters, as if these are separate modes of research. But as Preciado says, he's taking testosterone so he can write this book. Mm. These words are a direct effect of this transformative bodily experience. So to separate the personal from the historical and theoretical seemed to disavow his project in some way. So our approach is going to be to consider all of this information as showing us what the pharmacopornographic era is, not just its historical origins, but how it's experienced and how it can be resisted. And also to consider what kind of writing and knowledge making is most conducive to this project. Yeah. So, Matty, you can start. Well, okay. Um, mm. Right. So while we're not considering these chapters or these forms of knowledge production as wholly separate, it is also the case that certain things are more concentrated in different chapters. Mm -hmm. So in chapters such as the pharmacopornographic era, Preciado quite extensively maps out his understanding of history um, and specifically the ways in which bodies are governed and subjectivities form today through techniques and technologies of what he calls pharmaco and porno power. So maybe we can give a couple of concrete examples of what that we think are a key for Preciado or that somehow are representative of the book's approach. Mm -hmm. And there's loads of these, but I think there are a few that are particularly important, or maybe these are just the ones that also jumped out to us yeah. as being, um, like they translated really well, or seemed really compelling. So one of the most helpful and 
exciting actually examples for me in the pharmacopower section is the description of what happens to the understanding of gender in 1950s America. So just as Foucault theorizes the construction of categories of sexual difference and sexuality is emerging in the 19th century, Preciado in this book is showing us how gender came to be a thing in the 20th century, and specifically how gender is technologically and pharmaceutically produced today. So my understanding of this um, is that in the 19th century, bodies were governed according to their reproductive capacity. So this idea of sexual difference, the belief that people are either men or women, as an epistemology is, is completely tied in with compulsory heterosexual reproduction. So here Preciado, um, in his kind of elucidation of this history, draws from trans theorists Suzanne Kessler and Wendy McKenna, who say that during the 19th century, people began to be, quote, diagnosed at birth as potential sperm and egg carriers. <laughs> it's which, so sinister. Yeah, it's a really helpful it, metaphor, like, it's so medical and I think mm. in this way draws attention to this idea that like what happens at birth to babies is a medical intervention mm -hmm. it kind of denaturalizes the idea of sexual difference in the sense of yeah. seeing how it becomes something that is an, a label that is imposed mm -hmm. and it's also I suppose just as a bit of a tangent for like trans theorists to say this is is really politically important in the sense that trans identity for so long has been diagnosed as a form yeah. of psychosis and so to kind of flip the switch and suggest that actually gender or sexual difference as a form of like integral to someone's being and their entire lives is a form of diagnosis as well that happens at birth. But then what happens in the 1950s, and Preciado is looking at the US in particular, is that these so-called sperm and egg carriers begin to resist that simple imperative on a political level. So we get things like the rise of feminism, the gradual visibility of homosexuality, and also the demand from those then classed as transsexuals to undergo sex reassignment surgery. And also during this time, researchers such as John Money are beginning to realise that, you know, other than the capacity to impregnate, gestate and lactate, there really is no definitive difference between those classed as men and women, and that hormones such as testosterone, oestrogen and progesterone are found in all bodies to varying degrees. And so a more um, complex understanding of what money actually calls gender identity in the 1950s mm. is required. And Preciado takes this moment that I really like in the book to point out that when faced with these threats to the binary order of sexual difference and with this new um, research, this new understanding of sexual dimorphism, the medical and political powers that be could have begun to produce alternative, more varied understandings of embodiment but instead actually came down harder than ever on the side of sexual difference. And this is really where the pharmacopornographic forms of biopower come into play, those that involve actively producing gender through, and to cite Preciado's examples, surgical, prosthetic and hormonal techniques. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Matty. Clear? Very, very concise. Okay. And so our next example is perhaps the most infamous and influential pharmaceutical development of the 20th century. Du, du, du. Birth control. Um, it's like it's a character. Yeah, here comes birth, birth control. control. And, and with the creation of the pill, which is the kind of birth control Preciado is talking about, we get the technical separation of heterosexuality and reproduction. And the pill is a great example of how the biopolitical strategies of the pharmacopornographic era are ones that appear to be both liberating and repressive. Mm. 
So the pill seems to be a particularly useful example because through this analysis, Preciado is able to explore the anxieties surrounding the separation between femininity and reproduction and the dominance of the norms of heterosexual and nuclear families in the US. For example, the pill was developed to mimic a regular menstrual cycle when actually it could just stop it altogether without any adverse side effects, just so there was no threat to the perceived natural connection between menstruation and femininity. Yeah, and this is something that we can still think about because like, I can even remember going on the pill myself and my mum being so, like, wanting me to have one that still involved having a period. But it's not a real period. It's completely synthetic. Yeah. But it's supposed to make you feel that you're still, your body's still behaving in a supposedly natural way when actually it's a way that mimics, like, reproductive capacities as if those are, like, part of your as if those are natural and actually it's just an idea of femininity really yeah and the whole point of taking the pill is so you can't reproduce exactly so that seems such a strange contradiction i think this is definitely one of the strongest parts of the book and i think especially because it draws out the ways in which race and racialization play into the production of gender in in the west so first of all it seems important to note that preciado tells us that the early research into hormonal control that led to the contraceptive pill was first thought of simultaneously as a eugenic device for controlling non-white population growth in the US and also as a means of assisting sterile white Catholic families to reproduce because at the beginning when they were kind of working with what hormones could do Mm. the aim wasn't always or not only to limit reproduction but also perhaps to assist it. Mm -hmm. Okay and with regard to the large-scale testing of the pill by the inventors John Rock and Gregory Pincus, their move to testing the pill hormones on humans led them to try and find the most controllable portion of the ovulating female population or, quote, a cage of ovulating females. So creepy. And therefore, they implemented the testing of the pill on women living on the island of Puerto Rico because these women were considered to be docile, poor and uneducated. And the inventors thought that if they were able to manage this so-called complex regime, then white American women would surely be able to, one of the many abhorrent ideas that they peddled. Mm -hmm. And so began the first drug trial to be enacted in the domestic space of the home. These women were subjected to rigorous and invasive routines to ensure the efficacy of the hormones, and therefore extending the methods of control from bodies to the homes that they lived in. Yeah, and also Preciado talks about how the actual buildings that these that these women were living in were state owned and were part of like a kind of cleaning up process it basically is saying that the forms of control that are architectural and bodily become interconnected exactly and this was nothing new in fact these actions just continued a long history of sterilization of population control of specifically non-white women on the island enacted by the american state and preciado writes that the island was treated as quote an extended non-white female body, unquote, that the pill regulated. And I think it's useful here to imagine the space as a body as well as the body as a body and this extension of racial manipulation and regulation that was enacted through and determined by this supposedly liberatory effects of birth control. Right, and I wonder if at that point it was actually expected to be liberatory for these women or whether it was like later on that that narrative of it being liberatory yeah, gets I think taken so. up. And... Yeah, Preciado speaks of the history of treatment of women in Puerto Rico and how the traditional North American and European separation of space architecturally 
was according to gender and sexuality. So an example of this is housewives cooking in the home and sex workers in brothels and how this was implemented as part of the colonial logic in Puerto Rico. And this meant that poor non-white women were not understood as bodies that should reproduce, but to function as sex workers. Right. So it's not s- it's so they can't reproduce, but in order for them to, to be... To serve another purpose. Yeah. And these roles served, yeah, a double purpose for the state, managing population control and the so-called deviancy of these women. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's worth saying here that, of course... Preciado is really interested in the way that the pill is first tested in this colonial setting and then comes to be marketed towards a white middle class um, population. But this is just one way of looking into the relationship between birth control and femininity and race. Because later in the book, he very briefly mentions Norplant, which was a kind of early version of the implant you can get these days that sits under the skin of your upper arm and releases hormones. And the legal scholar Dorothy Roberts has written extensively about the way that Norplant was embraced by the right wing in the 90s and how several US states tried to introduce legislation which would actually allow for the state to threaten to cut women's welfare if they wouldn't have Norplant implanted. So she looks at how the discourse around this is particularly racialized, like how it was discussed in the press, and she reveals this desire for racist forms of population control. And her analysis and like historical and legal research is so extensive. And I, I don't know, I just wish that Preciado had referenced it because his reference to Norplant is like so kind of brief. Mm. It's literally like two sentences and I would have just loved a little bit more. But really, this is just to say that there are so many different ways of understanding the relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and forms of control in the 20th century. And it's just good to remember that Preciado's historical narrative is just one of many which is obviously not something that I think he would deny. But this movement of pharmaceutical testing that you're talking about from the laboratory into the domestic space, or a kind of domesticated laboratory in a way... Mm, Yeah, that's um, a useful term, actually. Well, this is really important for his analysis because the pill in the book emerges as this like perfect example of the shift of forms of control from those of the 19th century to those of the pharmacopornographic era. So I'm going to go into a little bit of history here. Yeah, <laughs> but bear with it. me. Go for it. So Preciado introduces us to Foucault's analysis of the panopticon as a model for understanding how biopower worked in the 19th century um, as a form of control in which everybody, like everybody and everybody, <laughs> is visible and subject to state management and classification. So the panopticon is it's a building. Um, it's an architectural structure made up of individual cells built in concentric circles which each cell is visible from a central observation tower whose occupant is unseen by those in the cells. And the idea being that the observation tower could have somebody in it watching everybody, Mm. but the people in the cells would never know if there was someone there or not. Kind of like a Big Brother situation. Exactly. I think um, the theory behind it also being that, like, the space could be taken up by God. So just Mm -hmm. this idea that you're always being watched. So... Um, it was actually originally imagined by philosopher Jeremy Bentham as a model for increasing factory productivity. And in the 19th and 20th centuries, the design was used in countries such as the US, Ireland and Spain for building state prisons. But Preciado does this amazing bit of comparative research that leads him to call the pill, and this is where we get back to this idea of birth control, the edible panopticon. So he takes us through the history of how the pill was marketed to housewives in the 1950s and tells us how pharmaceutical companies were 
trying to figure out how to make sure that women who are perceived to be too ignorant to be able to follow simple instructions <laughs> need a simple form of packaging to make the whole taking a pill every day thing a bit easier. And, and what they came up with was a circular pill box designed to look like a telephone because, you know, women love to use the phone. <laughs> I do. Sorry. Um, but I do think, actually, that if we go back, that one of the first iterations of the pill was quite complex because you had to monitor your menstrual cycle and then take specific pills on specific days. Right. And then after that, they developed a pack where you take one a day and the important ones are intercut with placebos. Okay. It's still but, kind of offensive. Yeah. And I think it's the like the visuals of the marketing that he's especially interested in, which is this like hyper-feminine mm. image. Um, also this idea, I think in some of the adverts of like your husband being involved in the whole process so it's this like we're regulating together and I think a part of it is um one of the adverts was to like you take it at bedtime which is always at 11 o'clock or something because everyone listens to the 11 o'clock news oh right okay so it's like the music for the 11 o'clock news should remind you to take your pill because that's what everybody in America does at 11 o'clock. So what you see is this really uniform idea of Mm. who this woman is who's taking the pill emerging through this marketing campaign. Um, But Preziado is looking at the visuals of this circular telephone-looking pillbox. So Preziado said at a talk that I went to last year that one of his ways of doing research is to literally put loads of images of objects of interest on a table and the panopticon and the picture of the original circular pillbox jumped out at him as being really strikingly similar um and these pictures are are in the book so you can kind of see for yourself and there's actually a particular quote that i think really lays bare the mechanisms of the pharmacopornographic era that are really evident in this manufacturing of the pill so preciado writes um i think you've got the quote Uh, yeah the surveillance tower of the panopticon is replaced by the docile user of the pill who regulates herself Mm. which is a kind of terrifying idea but a very clear example of one of the strongest statements of the book, which really clicked a lot of things into place for me, which is the body no longer inhabits disciplinary spaces, but is inhabited by them. Mm. So it's no longer that we are surrounded by these disciplinary spaces, but they are within us, whether we decide they are or not. Yeah. And it's probably, I would have thought like from the book, it's also a bit of both that still continues to happen. Like lots of people do still inhabit disciplinary spaces actually. Of course, but they the technologies have advanced to the extent that they're also occupying us. Yeah. Well, he is also looking at like how forms of discipline are synthetic, and yeah. ingested and consumed. Yeah. So this quote is extremely important and kind of sums up, at least for me, the methodology of the pharmacopornographic era, if an era can be said to have a methodology. Mm. Well, I think that the pill as an example is so important because it shows us that. The pill was never meant to be liberatory, actually. It was deemed as such at a certain point, but only by like the privileged few. Because actually, the way it was imagined was as a, as a racist, a sexist, and also, of course, completely heteronormative form of population mm-hmm. control. So, I mean, it's not to deny that it obviously is liberatory for millions of women, but that right. it came with these... This was the process through which it was designed. Right. And also that that probably echoes still today. Yeah, like it would definitely. be interesting to think more about that. So 
it's also an important example precisely because of that, because it reveals how implicated all bodies are within these systems and how impossible it is to completely escape them. Mm -hmm. If you do need a form of birth control for whatever reason, if you need to take hormones, if you have contact with any kind of pharmaceutical product at any point. But we'll come to how Preciado thinks you can resist precisely through your consumption of pharmaceuticals later. Yeah. So we're going to move on to the next mega topic of the book. If you're ready, which is porno power that we are yet to understand or comprehend, but <laughs> I've decided to talk about anyway. So according to Preciado, porno power is central to the pharmacopornographic era, obviously making up half of that term. But what is porno power? Uh, my very limited understanding of this, say, line of argument is that everything is driven by sexual potential or desire and I don't really understand the difference between these things but he seems to be saying that sexual desire or potential drives even forms of exchange that are not obviously sexual Mm -hmm. so he writes that and I don't really know how to explain this one but orgasmic force is the sum of the potential for excitation inherent in every material molecule (laughs) It gets a little bit clearer for me what what's happening when he says that in order to understand capitalism in the pharmacopornographic era, we need to understand this idea of potential that he calls potentia guedendi. And I mean, it's a modest claim to suggest that in order to understand the world order you've conceptualised, we need another concept to understand how capitalism functions within it. Um, <laughs> but I expect this chapter is more helpful for those who are more familiar with like Marxist feminism than I am um, because he says that labour has been pornified not feminized. and here critiquing theorists such as Maurizio Lazzarato and Tony Negri who claim that contemporary work is feminized and immaterial um, but at its most basic this kind of portion of analysis seems to be looking at the ways in which pleasure is capitalised. So, Mm -hmm. does that make sense? It does make sense. I think maybe it's worth going right back to the beginning of the chapter, which starts inexplicably with a list. Uh I assume that it is a list of the things that comprise porno power, or it's like points that accumulate to some kind of conceptualising of this idea. Yeah, I kind of liked that the form of this chapter is quite different to some of the others, and also not explained. Yeah, which... Preciado does throughout will just like change form suddenly Mm. without explaining but I mean it's up to you to work that out but so in the first paragraph of this chapter Preciado quotes Linda Williams's definition of pornography as quote an embodied image going on to explain that this is an image that incorporates itself as body as body and captures the body at quote the encounter with an eroticized technological apparatus So to me, this seems to call back the idea of the body being inhabited by disciplinary spaces and pornographic images being in us at the moment we encounter them or at the intersection of our body and technology. And also maybe the potential that all of our bodies have all of the time of becoming pornography. Or maybe he's even saying that they already are. Okay. (laughs) But the process, as I understand it, that he outlines in the first part of this chapter is that our sexuality is transformed into public representation. And this publicness refers to bodies being marketable 
and therefore able to take part in an exchange on the global market in a digital form. Right. Then, therefore, transforming into capital. Okay. So, instead of talking about a specific image or body here, he talks about representation, and it's when this representation becomes public rather than private that it becomes pornographic. So, what we're dealing with here seems to be mainly digital or visual representations that, through their publicness, become pornographic. Yeah. But I think that is an oversimplified reading. But from what I can gather, that's quite a useful start. Yeah, I think there even is a total disillusion of any public-private separation Yes, um, happening in this era. So, well, there are loads of examples that he gives of cultural phenomena that Mm -hmm. that are used to explore this these ideas. So, he talks about actually the mainstreaming of porn by Playboy. Um, specifically the first naked picture of Marilyn Monroe is, mm-hmm. is the beginning of all this as a moment in which pornographic content gets put into very wide circulation. But there are so many different kinds of examples where porno power is located in relation to pharmaceuticals actually. Um, and there is a list that Preciado provides that's quite helpful here for giving a sense of the scope of his argument and the breadth of the links made. So he writes that, just to mention a few things, quote, the rise and fall of Linda Lovelace from Deep Throat the trafficking of illegal sex workers across European borders, Armstrong's doping, the litres of sperm poured out each year during the making of porn films, the syringe that produced the sheep dolly by insemination, the synthetic guilelessness of weightlifters' muscles. These teach us more about current models of capitalist production than do all the industrial directories of the International Monetary Fund. I struggled a bit with this section because I, I want him to go into more detail I mean this is obviously a list and there are more developed Mm. arguments throughout but I just wanted to know a little bit more about the points being made here Um, and I would agree that this is probably true like these things probably do tell us more about capitalism than the International Monetary Fund but my question is like which comparable and cultural theorists are looking to the International Monetary Fund to learn about capitalism it's like one of his very performative and dramatic oversimplified points yeah that is on purpose yeah but um i think that we what we can glean from this list or example is that the body and all of its secretions are the initial location of porno power and here preciado also provides an example of resistance to the pornographic construction of performative and heteronormative sexuality although just to be clear i think preciado's stance is not that pornography is inherently bad no. or inherently good, it just is. Yeah. Or, like, there are forms of pornography that are more violent and exploitative than others. Like, it's not sex and porno- pornography in itself that has difficult or dangerous consequences, but the way it's manipulated yeah. and circulated and yeah. produced. Exactly. So he cites Annie Sprinkle, a feminist sex educator, former sex worker, and writer, amongst many other things. And her 1990 performance, The Public Cervix Announcement, and her use of the term post-pornography as a way to understand sexuality as performance. And this is presented in parallel with Judith Butler's infamous analysis of gender as a performative reiteration of the norms of masculinity and femininity. Although, for me, this is quite a frustrating section because it's a very underdeveloped argument. It's only about a page long, which seems strange for such a great claim, but I suppose not particularly out of character yeah. Um, for this like performance of knowledge somehow. But So in this performance, 
Um, Annie Sprinkle allowed the audience members to come up to the stage and look at her cervix through a speculum. And this, according to Preciado, was a critique of the visibility allowed by traditional pornography and medicine. So she displaces the perceived passive sexual object and lets, um, his example here is women, dykes, porn actresses, etc., become subjects of representation. So Sprinkle undermines the status quo of traditional sex and gender roles by allowing the previously repressed object to the fore as an autonomous subject. And while Annie Sprinkle is amazing and revolutionary, it just seems strange to have no acknowledgement of lineage here, yeah. as if this was the first moment. I mean, there's been so much feminist performance art before her doing similar, like artists doing similar things. Yeah, I mean, I do understand the difference because Annie Sprinkle is a porn star. Right. And a sex worker. It's frustrating in its lack of context because I think it could have been a very interesting argument if extrapolated upon and it just isn't. Right. And I think maybe I can just jump in and reiterate that this book is working with a very particular understanding um, of what sex is and what gender is and, and what art is and what performance mm-hmm. is and and in a very and a very especially like US based lineage of thinkers. And it's this trajectory that allows Preciado to make this claim that you know, runs parallel to Judith Butler's theorising of gender performativity, as if this is especially radical. But it's just good to remember that, like, there are other ways of... There are other histories, there are other narratives, there are other epistemologies and contexts for thinking about um, ways of resisting not just pornography, but, like, the over-sexualisation of certain bodies. So Mm -hmm. um, I think this section is just much more densely theoretical and requires a lot of previous knowledge that I just don't have so it's dense but it also jumps from topic to topic from theorist Mm. to theorist without going into that much detail in a way that's kind of like glorious and exciting but difficult if you don't if you can't make the leaps with him I suppose I mean it's definitely Preciado the philosopher it's most dramatic and in a way that I just find a bit less effective than in some of the other moments. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I think that there's definitely a huge difference in the methodology of this porno power chapter compared with the pharmaco power chapter. Yeah, which has such like long, detailed historical research in it that, that makes what Fessiardo is saying quite clear, I think. Yeah, there's a slight lack of clarity due to the form and style but it really helped us to find a review of the book by Julian Jill Peterson in the Women and Performance Journal because the review calls this part of the narrative or actually maybe just the whole book unsettlingly precocious yeah uh, which was just a relief because I think we just both thought yeah it is yeah it is but I like the way that the review isn't presenting this as like a bad thing but almost like as a kind of method for dealing with like history and knowledge and theory which I kind of enjoyed but sometimes the book is like being faced with this ridiculously smart kind of high friend (laughs) who's who's like intellectual steps you just cannot quite follow but you think that you're experiencing them in a really great way yeah and you're like wowed and overwhelmed by (laughs) um but that was a lot of information Yes, but now it's going to get fun. Mm. Right, 
So all this info and this like theory and history that we've gone into successfully or not so much up to you. <laughs> um, it all accumulates and adds together to make up this overall argument that we're living in the pharmacopornographic era which is dominated by these different forms of power, the pharmaceutical, the pornographic, which are always connected. But the way that this info is presented is so specific. And I think that to to really get a sense of how we experience this as readers, we have to get back to this initial idea of the experiment and the way that Preciado actively engages with the question of how to produce knowledge, how to write in Mm -hmm. this era. So lest we forget, Preciado tells us in the introduction of the book that this is an account of what he calls a political experiment that lasted 236 days and nights, in which BP self-administered testosterone in gel form. So this isn't simply a theory book written by Paul Preciado, but it's also, and arguably primarily, a narrative of self-experimentation performed by the assigned female at birth character BP, mm-hmm. who takes testosterone for well almost a year and documents its effects. I mean... So at one point, BP tells us, just to be clear, that he's decided to keep his legal identity as a woman and not to subscribe to a sex change protocol and actually calls this position one of political arrogance. Recognising that it is his privileged position as white, as someone who doesn't need to look for a job, that enables this particular route of taking testosterone that is not available to all of those who want it and need it, or desirable. So it's not simply Preciado writing theory or Preciado writing autobiography, but just, you know, something more exciting. And I mean, we can make this really clear. The first (laughs) sentence of the introduction is, quote, This book is not a memoir. This book is a testosterone-based voluntary intoxication protocol which concerns the body and affects of BP, a body essay. Fiction, actually. If things must be pushed to the extreme, this is a somatopolitical fiction, a theory of the self or self-theory. Yeah, what does he mean by the self if it is fiction? I mean, we could talk about how the self being fiction or somatopolitical fiction is exactly what the book is suggesting we all are. Somatopolitical Mm. fiction's living in and shaped by the pharmacopornographic era. Yeah. But to go back a minute, maybe, the suggestion implicit here is that the self is something that is constructed like a narrative and not some kind of essence of ourselves that we possess no matter what. Yes, no, definitely. <laughs> I think he's ex- no, I think he's exploring this the way that subjectivity is constructed and formed from like a huge mixture of influences and mechanisms. So you know, sometimes in the book it can seem like BP is using like very theoretical terms to talk about his every experience. But I think that's part of, of the kind of argument of the book that this is because he's exploring the ways in which these experiences are constructed, and that you know that subjectivity is political. Mm-hmm. And I think that to call it fiction is kind of performative. Um, not to say that it's not real. I mean, who thinks that of fiction anyway? But to remind us or to show us that the book is also not to be read as a pairing of, say, like hard fact and memoir. I mean, I think it's clear from now that Preciado would refute these categories. But that's what the performative use of the word fiction here does for me. But also it's kind of like a tease, like... You don't know me and you don't need to know me in order for the stakes of the book to be real. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to reroute the conversation a bit towards the non-theoretical chapters and start with the quote at the beginning, well, the epigraph at the beginning of the book, Mm. which is framed as a question to Jacques Derrida, (laughs) of course. And it is, if you could see a documentary on a philosopher, on Heidegger, Kant or Hegel, 
what would you like to see in it? And Derrida's answer is, for them to talk about their sex life. I don't think I want to watch any of those documentaries. No, you don't have to, Maddie. Um, But this starts the whole book, and do you think it frames the narrator's attitude in some way? I mean, Mm. Presion is basically proposing that this is what he is gifting the reader, an intimate look into BP's sex life, which I, for one, am grateful for. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, But I've been thinking about it in relation to this kind of audacious quote from the end of the first chapter where Preciado states, quote, I have no other alternative but to accept the fact that the change happening in me is the metamorphosis of an era. Mm. Which sounds grandiose and hilariously kind of self-absorbed, but actually... Well, it's, it's interesting because I wonder if he would think that if... Kant or Hegel or Heidegger were to talk about their sex lives that would also be a way of understanding the metamorphosis of their eras it seems like what he's suggesting is that it's integral for the philosopher of this era to -hmm. do that work specifically because that is the only way we can understand our era through our bodies yeah and so I think it's it's not so much this like everything the things that are happening to me a representative of the whole the whole era yeah. but more that anything that happens to my body can be understood within the context of my time mm-hmm. um, which is actually much less self-centered than than like the original the quote could seem to suggest yeah i mean this centralizing of the self and knowledge production is just a huge part of his approach to to theory making to what it means to create knowledge in the pharmacopornographic era and this is where we really get the concept of auto-theory, which is properly addressed with the suggestion, actually, that to continue Foucault's work, which is the task that Preciado does seem to have set yeah. himself, within this era does mean turning the analysis inwards, both in terms of, like, inwards to the physical body and also inwards to the, like, construction of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. So, well, this is actually a direct repetition of that, of that earlier quote I read about how um, looking to the, like, Discourse around Linda Lovelace, for example, tells us more about capitalism than the International Monetary Fund. Um, but later in the book, he tells us that this same group of contemporary phenomena tells us more about philosophy than any philosophy book of the 20th mm-hmm. century. And so here comes the auto theory quote The philosophy of the pharmacopornographic regime has been reduced to an enormous dripping butt plug camera. In such circumstances, the philosophy of such high punk modernity can only be auto-theory, auto-experimentation, auto-techno-penetration, pornology. So there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Now this for me is exemplary of the attitude that drives the book. The centralising of the transformation of Preciado's body through taking testosterone as something that condenses all the theoretical arguments into a bodily shift, as like a Mm. way of grounding social and political change in specific personal experience. And Preciado even says later that he puts the 50 milligrams of testogel on his skin so he can write this book, which I think I mentioned earlier. Mm. And these ideas that have been committed to the page are a direct result of altering the levels of testosterone in the body. And that in itself is wild to follow this logic of a hormone in liquid form, producing or providing the condition for these ideas to come to fruition. And it seems, in a way, to be the perfect example of the pharmacopornographic era, So maybe I would argue that this claim, along with the double penetration scene that I'll talk about next, is Preciado showing us what the pharmacopornographic era consists of and how it operates, or how it can operate in bodies. And how to operate within it in a way that 
reveals its mechanisms and maybe challenges exactly. them. Exactly, exactly, Matty. So, this double penetration scene comes in the first chapter right at the beginning of the book before we've had any of the theory stuff. Yeah. And it is a description of a video that BP makes the day that his friend GD dies. And this briefly involves BP shaving his head and then using the hair to glue on a small moustache, shaving his pubic hair and then putting on a strap-on and double penetrating himself. Huh? <laughs> Matty looks confused. Not with the strap-on. That would be different. Not with the strap-on that he's wearing. Okay. No. And it's incredible writing. It's kind of both sombre and sexy and kind of removed, as if Preciado is describing somebody else doing it. And, yeah, what do you think, Matty? Yeah, I think you're right. There's this kind of mournful, eulogistic element to it, at the same time as it being, like, kind of shocking. I mean, when... (laughs) (laughs) My voice went so high that I'm such a prude. Um... (laughs) No, but I just think you have no idea what you're getting when you read this. Like, you don't know what kind of a book you're going to be reading. Or, mm. um, and I think it's it's easy to forget this scene, actually, as you go through the book. Yeah. Uh, but this is how the book starts, in this, in this kind of... With a performance in front of a camera that is so highly personal, also erotic, also all about death and mourning. So... And seems to me to be exemplifying so many components of the pharmacopornographic era but before we've reached those right. in the text so somehow it also manages to be incredibly subtle yeah in like a very strange way yeah because at so many points in the book Preciado is telling you exactly what he's doing and mm. is um is clearly stating this means this and there are so many kind of concise sentences that r- wrap up the arguments in ways that can be really helpful but I also like that we do get this moment and, and I'm sure there are others as well that are not explained that we're left to kind of think about ourselves exactly but also somehow contains all these topics that become topics later on but at this point are just observations or are just facts of the scene mm. so the suggestion of assigned gender norms the heterosexual matrix drugs medically prescribed hormones the internet video pharmacopornographic subjectivities that these all produce a kind of inherent in in this scene but we just are not kind of aware of them in that sense yet but also I kind of think that the whole book is held in this chapter somehow and it's titled Your Death it's just it's just such an intense um, component of the book that is reiterated at the very end I think but disappears slightly yeah we'll come back to that in, yeah. in a minute but I think it is really interesting because the book does weave among so many different kinds of writing I mean, there really is a difference between chapters like Jimmy and Me, which is all about a dildo and this writing, like this scene at the beginning of the book, and then a chapter like the micropolitics of gender in the pharmacopornographic era. But at the same time, there's also a blurring of genre and forms of knowledge production going on. One of the most helpful ways for me to think about what the book is doing in terms of genre, actually, is to think about it as a polemic and even a manifesto. Because I think one of the most striking things about this book and about Preciado as a thinker in general is how how he can be so clear and concise Mm -hmm. and how there's a kind of activism to his writing. Because I think he is actually calling for some very concrete, practical things here. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the democratisation of hormones, which is really important. So he writes that freely circulating and collectively used testosterone is dynamite for the heterosexual regime, which I really like, which is a model of circulation that is different to the way that hormones are managed and distributed in most countries today. Like, for example, 
if you're trans in most countries you have to declare yourself as suffering gender dysphoria in order to gain access to the hormones you mm-hmm. need so to partake in a particularly medicalized narrative of your relationship to gender that is just not true of many people's experiences of of, the, of their gender their bodies themselves so that's one practical thing the other is like he suggests kind of modes of queer resistance um one of them is undertaking drag king workshops as a form of what he calls queer analysis which is um presented as like an alternative to psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. and this is a really like fun part of the book where he writes about participating in these workshops and then running them himself and then of course there's the larger project of the book which i think is to produce a shift in understanding um i think the deepest form of activism that the book offers is just this awareness that it offers of the way that all bodies are technologically produced um, and of the fiction that is gender. So he writes, and this is where the statement gets really clear, I now need to convince you, all of you, that you are like me and not the opposite. And this very bold moment of address to the reader is maybe a good time for us to talk about what seems to be one of kind of the key elements in the production of knowledge in the book or in the tonal experience of reading it especially, which is, you know, the personality of this narrator. I mean, I don't know, what were your initial affective responses towards the narrator? Did did you like him? Yeah, well, this is kind of hard. I think it's it's strange to think about my initial response now after spending so much time with the book, but I think I was very taken... Well, (laughs) typical British (laughs) innuendo. I was definitely seduced by his forceful voice and attitude. And it took me a while to allow this to be part of the performativity of BP's character. I mean, obviously it's framed in such a way that the the whole context of the book and content of the book deconstructs our ideas of masculinity and femininity. And so even thinking about BP's tone as aggressive in a kind of masculine way is problematic because actually this masculine feminine dynamic is operating totally outside the bounds of heteronormativity here. Yeah. But I did find myself resistant to the force of the narration at times, although I really enjoyed the way that it gives shape to the sexual energy of the book. So I definitely have mixed feelings. I'm not really sure what to think about that. Mm. Yeah, I think I feel similarly. I mean, when I first read the book, I was completely seduced and just downright attracted to Preciado and or BP. Yeah, I was very drawn in by the book's energy and, and the writer's confidence. And I loved the sex parts and found them really hot. And just also love the way the sexual energy spills over into all parts of the narrative. Yeah, I mean, it's really the driving force of the book. And Preciado's energy takes us through the whole experience. And it helps the theory parts go a bit quicker because you want to get to the next sex <laughs> Yeah, I think it's quite revealing about my life that I have to find my erotica via theory. But I'm glad I found it nonetheless. Well, you've got to get it where you can. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's largely his confidence that I find very compelling, especially um, in relation to the kind of content that's being presented. It's like wonderful to read someone writing about these things with such force. And I'm obviously on board with the way that this historical and theoretical narrative is being presented as really important. But at the same time, I find myself feeling kind of uneasy about this form of communication. Well, do you think, I mean, it's the, the way that Preciado writes kind of reminds me of all those old history textbooks where the usually white male author is presenting all the information as if it were true. Yeah. And this is kind of what Preciado does, but with information I actually want. Exactly. So yeah. it's this very strange turning... Like it, tur- it turns this form on its head somehow because you're getting all this historical information 
but through the body of Preciado, who's like performing this way of producing knowledge. Yeah, yeah, and this is also like a history of the 20th century that I have never read before and really needed and really want, um, and just want many, many, many more historical yeah. narratives like this. It's also not just the narrator's voice, but also the book itself as a material object that I think has this like personality. Mm. <laughs> I mean, even the cover. Yeah, it, the cover's kind of amazing. You pointed this out to me and I hadn't really thought about it before, but it just has so there's the letters Testo Junkie, which take up the majority of the page. Yeah. With a photograph of Preciado like coming staring through them, through them at yeah. you in this kind of challenging way. Yeah. It's like almost Im- Im- daring us to read the book in a way that I think is quite representative of, of the writing. Yeah. But in a, even just to have this title on the... like. Even just to be faced by these words, it's also kind of intimidating, like sex, drugs and biopolitics in the pharmacopornographic era. I mean, what kind of an audience is this book selling itself to? Like, who's going to pick that up and be like, oh, yes, I know exactly what this book's about. (laughs) Not that that's a problem, but it's just interesting that I think it's like challenging nature, even though the book's also really clear in a lot of ways. I Mm. think it can also be quite intimidatingly dense. Um, That is like reflected in the way it's marketed as well. Yeah. (laughs) But while I find the book so exciting, um, it's of course not to say that BP is this like politically flawless figure, whatever that would look like. And I would be interested to talk for a, a little bit about the tensions between the kind of different tones, or maybe like internal contradictions in the book, like the different ways it approaches this question of political agency within the mm-hmm. pharmacopornographic yeah. era. So, so the book really advocates specificity and detail and context in all the ways that we always look for um and also the possibility of embodying contradiction but at the same time i do think it enjoys a certain kind of simplicity like a celebration of deviance and anti-normativity that while important um and exciting can be potentially reductive so i think i can explain this just by there's just this one scene in the book that that really bothered me um because despite asserting that all bodies are products of the pharmacopornographic era and are produced and products of technology, the book does occasionally reveal its assumptions about like who is deemed to be aware of this and who mm-hmm. is deemed to be like passive within this regime, and not just assumed to be passive by the like dominant discourse, but even by the writer or the narrator himself at times. So I would especially like to point us to this moment in the book when BP and VD are at VD's film studio. And they're with a group of people that VD works with, all cis guys. And they're watching this kind of horribly exploitative audition video of this naked girl. And Preziano presents the two of them, VD and BP, as, as somehow disrupting this kind of boys club vibe of the scene so the guy who's showing the video who's referred to as hairy arm which is, is hilarious because i think hairy arm like returns somewhere yeah. else in the book i think hairy arm <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to say that seriously <laughs> which is maybe the point as well yeah. it becomes representative of this kind of toxic masculinity that's yeah. being um explored or and, and critiqued in the book but at the same time i do f- i find this scene is kind of lacking that critique mm. because so so this figure is 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 presented as being um kind of thrown off by the presence of bp and vd as if these two uh, seen by him as cis women watching the video kind of disrupts this scene of the film that's only supposed to be watched that's only supposed to be for male consumption um but then there's this other character in the room who 
is presented as one of the cis guy's girlfriends. And the quote is, another dude who is working as an agent and is with his Japanese girlfriend, who's single-celled, docile, and ultra-feminine, an amoeba of high design. Um, and I can't really understand where the gaze is coming from in this moment. Yeah. Um, and how we're supposed to read this line, but... It just seems to be reproducing a stereotype of Asian women as submissive and passive, and I, I don't really understand what this is doing, especially when it's compared to VD, who's described as being a guy among guys, so you really get this sense that the scene is coming from the gaze of, of BP. Mm-hmm. And then just before the video starts, we're told that the girlfriend has gone to sit outside the main room. And this is the weird quote. So, perhaps such a high level of testosterone in a surrounding atmosphere could be harmful to her amoeba-like purity. And I just really hate this line. Um, I think it's really reductive. I also don't understand what its function is at all. No, me neither. Yeah. I mean, maybe I need to go back and read it again, but I just found it really boring. And I think whatever the kind of exploration of toxic masculinity is here, because there is a moment later on in this section Mm. of the book where Bibi kind of asks, will I become hairy arm if I keep taking testosterone? It's this like, what, what is... The relationship between testosterone and masculinity and, and it, it could all be leading up to that moment but it's not clear it's not clear and i just it's the steps that are taken that i don't appreciate this presentation of this racialized woman as being like passive as being unable to cope with the presence of testosterone mm-hmm. that i just find really like displeasing <laughs> displeasing no i think that's it's really important topic to address but i also want to talk a bit about um vd here who we haven't really mentioned yet, and there's a very important presence in the book. But I'm particularly interested in the chapter titled In Which the Body of VD Becomes an Element in an Experimental Context. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure what that experimental context is, but anyway. Um, And this chapter intercuts Preciado's description of growing up as a lesbian in an all-girls Catholic school and reacting to, quote, every piece of ass that moves. And he describes all the heterosexual girls as whores that his dildo will penetrate. Which is like very intense and a very particular gaze that is being performed. And then it switches to a scene where he's describing having sex with VD in a hotel room and where he describes himself as her whore. And what I took from this kind of structural intercutting of scenes was how this shifts the power dynamics that seem to be at play here. I mean, Preciado goes from being this almost lecherous figure to being submissive in the hands of VD. Yeah. And it's almost like an acknowledgement that this performativity is, like, slippery and shifting. Yeah. And is not determined by, like, Preciado's gender or sexuality, actually. No. And and again, like he says at a certain point in the book, like, testosterone is not masculinity. Exactly. Like, taking testosterone doesn't imbue him with a kind of masculinity that he doesn't want or, like, that he rejects. No, exactly. And also... I think this every piece of ours that moves is like that's such a it's such a stereotype of like paranoia around queerness mm-hmm. in schools especially like lesbians in yeah, girls schools that like the lesbian in the school must be thinking this about every girl and so I kind of love that he's like yeah I was thinking this yeah, about every exactly. girl <laughs> and it's an amazing passage because he also talks about his relationship with his mother and how some like some one of the parents at the school told her that he was gay and she like couldn't really handle this so took it upon herself to assume that Preciado was was sleeping with loads of guys yeah I was gonna get pregnant and that was the terrible thing yeah couldn't handle it and so actually there's like weird flipping of like oh no I can't handle that but I 
I know how to deal with this situation, yeah. which was really interesting. But yeah. anyway, the so the end of this scene where um, Preciado's describing having sex with VD, he kind of returns to theory in this really amazing quote, which is, when I come, Wittig and Davis, Wolf and Solanus, La Passionaria, Kate Bornstein and Annie Sprinkle bubble up with me. She is covered with my feminism as if with a diaphanous ejaculation, a sea of political sparkles. Wow. Which I think is like quite an exemplary sentence of the kind of approach to to everything, theory and sex in the book. Yeah, the way that every like so potentially personal moment is also like a theoretical moment. Yeah, I think this is just this is just a particularly key moment, I think, because it seems to kind of build upon all of the ideas that have been considered so far. And there's also another sentence that is in this chapter where Preciado talks about all these heterosexual girls that he's attracted to, but how when they've come into contact with him, they're marked by the fire of the revolution. (laughs) And it's so easy to be seduced by this idea and like Preciado walking around. But in some ways, and in some ways I totally am seduced by it, but it can seem pretty problematic because it does this binarizing that Preciado is so politically invested in avoiding but it's also so clearly a methodology he's like right. performing this hyper masculine gaze as like a political project to fuck everything without a biocock yeah and then dowsing all these girls with his revolutionary existence yeah but i think this does come back to this idea of like who's a re- who's assumed to be revolutionary in the first place i mean it's kind of arrogant to assume that these so-called heterosexual girls have no political agency or thoughts of their own that like they couldn't be revolutionary without him mm-hmm. um i mean i haven't read a lot of romantic poetry but it seems kind of byron-esque but then in a way that i also adore i mean like i don't know i think this this approach has its limits as we see with the guy among guy scene yeah i mean it really reminds me of um Tikkun's the theory of the young girl where the young girl is supposed to be everyone right the theory of the young girl is conceptualized through the body of the young girl but it's not supposed to be one but because the this concept is so gendered it's almost impossible to see that it's like very difficult to to look past the young girl as a body and here all of these heterosexual girls for preciado become a kind of metaphor they're like aren't actually a person yeah well it's interesting as well because that relates to this I mean, I still don't really understand it, but this idea that he's actually challenging that kind of impulse when he suggests that labour is pornified and not feminised. Yeah. Um, but I think someone else could do a better job of unpicking that one than I can right now. But that's a good point. Um, oh, wow. Well, I mean, we've talked at length now about how the book presents a theory of the pharmacopornographic era. We have. And about taking testosterone and writing auto-theory and queer forms of resistance. But one thing we haven't really touched on um, is this like narrative framing device of the book, which is the address to BOP's friend GD, whose death begins the book and whose funeral ends it. Yeah, it's an, a literal framing device. And quite a few of the chapters begin with references to GD, and it's interesting c- to consider what this framing does. To the way we experience the book because it's such a high energy ride of ego and sexuality and activism which actually all rides on death as a motivation somehow yeah i mean preciado says he is taking testosterone amongst other things quote to foil what society wanted to make of me to add a molecular prosthesis to my low-tech tra- transgender identity composed of dildos texts and moving images i do it to avenge your death so this book is a dedication to the existence of someone who appears in the book as kind of fiercely intelligent and 
a kind of pushy revolutionary in his relationship with Preciado anyway. <laughs> pushy revolutionary. But he's always like calling Preciado off and being like, you haven't written anything, this is shit, do it again, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And we're not taking this book as like only an or simply an autobiography, but I, I do love the idea of it being written for somebody. Because I think running through this like exhausting and invigorating text is this constant sense of the importance of community. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Of sharing resources, like often hormones, and of building knowledge collectively with and with care, um, as well as, or, or even as a form of kind of high punk resistance. Like, knowledge is always relational and always personal. It is. And this book is great evidence of that. And, well, maybe that can conclude our last episode. Yeah, we have to stop at some point. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. I'm kind of sad, but we did it. That was a mega long one. But we just want to say at the end a final thank you to Steffi Rao for her beautiful graphic design. And if you want to see her other work, you can go to her website at stephanie-rao.com and also Lena Lewis-King, who did the brilliant music for the podcast. And you can see her work at lena.hotglue.me. And you can subscribe to Textual Feelings on iTunes and leave us reviews. And if you don't use iTunes, you can also download our episodes directly from SoundCloud, where you can also like us and comment. And if you don't know it, our blog address is textual-feelings.tumblr.com. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Feeling Textual, on Instagram at Feelings underscore Textual, or you can email us at textualfeelings at gmail.com if you want to write us a farewell note. <laughs> um, but before we go, I want to thank you, Rosie. It's been such Aww. a joy to turn our friendship into, into this collaboration. Oh, it has been a joy. And thanks to everyone <laughs> who made it this far. Yeah, well done. You listened to the whole thing. You get an extra thank you. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye bye. Text you.